Guy Mannering or the Astrologer by Sir Walter Scott. Volume one, Editor's Introduction. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Editor's Introduction. The second essay in fiction of an author who has triumphed in his first romance is a doubtful and perilous adventure. The writer is apt to become self-conscious, to remember the advice of his critics, a fatal error, and to tremble before the shadow of his own success. He knows that he will have many enemies, that hundreds of people will be ready to find fault and to vow that he is written out. Scott was not unacquainted with these apprehensions. After publishing Marmion, he wrote thus to Lady Abercorn. No one acquires a certain degree of popularity without exciting an equal degree of malevolence among those who, either from rivalship or from mere wish to pull down what others have set up, are always ready to catch the first occasion to lower the favoured individual to what they call his real standard. Of this I have enough experience, and my political interferences, however useless to my friends, have not failed to make me more than the usual number of enemies. I am therefore bound, in justice to myself and to those whose good opinion has hitherto protected me, not to peril myself too frequently. The naturalists tell us that if you destroy the web which the spider has just made, the insect must spend many days in inactivity till he has assembled within his person the materials necessary to weave another. Now, after writing a work of imagination, one feels in nearly the same exhausted state as the spider. I believe no man now alive writes more rapidly than I do, no great recommendation, but I never think of making verses till I have a sufficient stock of poetical ideas to supply them. I would as soon join the Israelites in Egypt in their heavy task of making bricks without clay. Besides, I know, as a small farmer, that good husbandry consists in not taking the same crop too frequently from the same soil, and as turnips come after wheat, according to the best rules of agriculture, I take it that an addition of swift will do well after such a scourging crop as marmion. March the 13th, 1808, copied from the collection of Lady Napier and Etterick. These fears of the brave, then, were not unfamiliar to Scott, but he audaciously disregarded all of them in the composition of Guy Mannering. He had just spun his web, like the spider of his simile. He had just taken off his intellectual fields, the scourging crop of the Lord of the Isles. He had just received the discouraging news of its comparative failure when he buckled to achieving Guy Mannering in six weeks and published it. Moliere tells us that he wrote Les Fachoux in a fortnight, and a French critic adds that it reads indeed as if it had been written in a fortnight. Perhaps a self-confident censor might venture a similar opinion about Guy Mannering. It assuredly shows traces of haste. The plot wanders at its own will, and we may believe that the author often did not see his own way out of the wood. But there is little harm in that. If I do not know what's coming next, a modern novelist has remarked, how can the public know? Curiosity, at least, is likely to be excited by this happy-go-lucky manner of Scots. The worst of it is, as he wrote to Lady Abercorn about his poems, June the 9th, 1808, that I am not very good or patient in slow and careful composition, and sometimes I remind myself of the drunken man who could run long after he could not walk. Scott could certainly run very well, though adverse to a plodding motion. He was probably thinking of a famous Edinburgh character, 
singing Jamie Balfour. Jamie was found very drunk and adhering to the pavement one night. He could not raise himself, but when helped to his feet, ran his preserver a race to the tavern and won. The account of the year's work which preceded Guy Mannering is given by Lockhart and is astounding. In 1814, Scott had written, Lockhart believes, the greater part of the life of Swift, most of Waverley, and the Lord of the Isles. He had furnished essays to the Encyclopedia, and had edited the memory of the Somervilles. The spider might well seem spun out, the tilth exhausted, but Scott had a fertility, a spontaneity of fancy, equalled only, if equal to all, by Alexander Dumas. On November the 7th of this laborious year, 1814, Scott was writing to Mr. Joseph Train, thanking him for a parcel of legendary lore, including the Galloway tale of the wandering astrologer, and a budget of gypsy traditions. Falling in the rich soil of Scott's imagination, the tale of the astrologer yielded a name and an opening to Guy Mannering, while the gypsy lore blossomed into the legend of Meg Merrilies. The seed of the novel was now sown, but between November the 11th and December the 25th, Scott was writing the three last cantos of The Lord of the Isles. Yet before The Lord of the Isles was published, January 18th, 1815, two volumes of Guy Mannering were in print, Letter to Morritt, January the 17th, 1815. The novel was issued on February the 14th, 1815. Scott, as he says somewhere, was like the turnspit dog, into whose wheel a hot cinder is dropped to encourage his activity. Scott needed hot cinders in the shape of proof sheets, fresh from the press, and he worked most busily when the printer's devil was waiting. In this case, not only the printer's devil, but the wolf was at the door. The affairs of the Ballantines clamoured for monies. In their necessity, and his own, Scott wrote at the rate of a volume in ten days, and for some financial reason published Guy Mannering with Messrs Longmans, not with Constable. Scott was at this moment facing creditors and difficulties as Napoleon faced the armies of the Allies, present everywhere, everywhere daring and successful. True, his Lord of the Isles was a disappointment, as James Ballantyne informed him. Well, James, so be it. But you know we must not droop, for we cannot afford to give over. Since one line has failed, we must just stick to something else. And so he dismissed me and resumed his novel. In these circumstances, far from inspiring, was Guy Mannering written and hurried through the press. The story has its own history. One can watch the various reminiscences and experiences of life that crystallised together in Scott's mind and grouped themselves fantastically into his unpremeditated plot. Sir Walter gives, in the preface of 1829, the legend which he heard from John McKinley, his father's Highland servant, and on which he meant to found a tale more in Hawthorne's manner than in his own. That plan he changed in the course of printing, leaving only just enough of astrology to annoy pedantic reviewers and foolish Puritans. Whence came the rest of the plot, the tale of the long-lost heir and so on? The true heir, kept out of his own and returning in disguise, has been a favourite character ever since Homer sang of Odysseus, and probably long before that. But it is just possible that Scott had a certain modern instance in his mind. In turning over the old manuscript diary at Branksholm Park, mentioned in a note to Waverley, the editor lighted on a singular tale which, in the diarist's opinion, might have suggested Guy Mannering to Sir Walter. 
the resemblance between the story of van beest brown and the hero of the diarist was scanty but in a long letter of scott's to lady abercorn may twenty first eighteen thirteen the editor finds sir walter telling his correspondent the very narrative recorded in the branksholm park diary singular things happen sir walter says and he goes on to describe a case just heard in the court where he's sitting as clerk of sessions briefly the anecdote is this a certain mr carruthers of dormant had reason to suspect his wife's fidelity whilst proceedings for a divorce were pending mrs carruthers bore a daughter of whom her husband of course was legally the father but he did not believe in the relationship and sent the infant girl to be brought up in ignorance of her origin and in seclusion among the cheviot hills here she somehow learned the facts of her own story she married a mr routledge the son of a yeoman and compounded her rights but not those of her issue for a small sum of ready money paid by old dormant she bears a boy then she and her husband died in poverty their son was sent by a friend to the east indies and was presented with a packet of papers which he left unopened at the lawyers the young man made a fortune in india returned to scotland and took a shooting in dumfrieshire near dormant his ancestral home he lodged at a small inn hard by and the landlady struck by his name began to gossip with him about his family history he knew nothing of the facts which the landlady disclosed but impressed by her story sent for and examined his neglected packet of papers then he sought legal opinion and was advised by president blair that he had a claim worth presenting on the estate of dormant the first decision of the cause writes scott was favourable the true heir celebrated his legal victory by a dinner party and his friends saluted him as dormant next morning he was found dead such is the true tale as it occupied scott's mind in eighteen thirteen and as he wrote guy mannering in eighteen fourteen to fifteen it is not impossible that he may have borrowed his wandering heir who returns by pure accident to his parental domains and there learns his origin at a woman's lips from the dormant case the resemblance of the stories at least was close enough to strike a shrewd observer some seventy years ago another possible source of the plot a more romantic origin certainly is suggested by mr robert chambers in illustrations of the author of waverley a maxwell of glenormiston a religious and bigoted recluse sent his only son and heir to a jesuit college in flanders left his estate in his brother's management and died the wicked uncle alleged that the heir was also dead the child ignorant of his birth grew up ran away from the jesuits at the age of sixteen enlisted in the french army fought at fontenoy got his colours and later landed in the moray firth as a french officer in seventeen forty five he went through the campaign was in hiding in lochaba after dramossi and making for a galloway port was seized and imprisoned in dumfries here an old woman of his father's household recognised him by a mark which she remembered on his body his cause was taken up by friends but the usurping uncle died and sir robert maxwell recovered his estates without a lawsuit this anecdote is quoted from the new monthly magazine june eighteen nineteen there is nothing to prove that scott was acquainted with this adventure scott's own experience as usual supplied him with hints for his characters the phrase of dominie sampson's father please god my bairn may live to wag his paw in a pulpit was uttered in his own hearing there was a blue gown or beadsman like eddie ochiltree 
who had a son at Edinburgh College. Scott was kind to the son, the blue gown asked him to dinner, and at this meal the old man made the remark about the pulpit and the poor. A similar tale is told by Scott in the introduction to The Antiquary, 1830. As for the good Dominie, Scott remarks that, for certain particular reasons, he must say what he has to say about his prototype very generally. Mr. Chambers finds the prototype in Mr. James Sanson, tutor in the house of Mr. Thomas Scott, Sir Walter's uncle. It seems very unlike Sir Walter to mention this excellent man almost by his name, and the tale about his devotion to his patron's daughter cannot, apparently, be true of Mr. James Sanson. The prototype of Playdell, according to Sir Walter himself, journal June 19th, 1830, was my old friend Adam Rowland Esquire in external circumstances, but not in frolic or fancy. Mr. Chambers, however, finds the original in Mr. Andrew Crosby, an advocate of great talents who frolicked to ruin and died in 1785. Scott may have heard tales of this patron of high jinks, but cannot have known him much personally. Dandy Dinmont is simply the typical border farmer. Mr. Shortreed, Scott's companion in his Liddlesdale raids, thought that Willie Elliot in Milburnholm was the great original. Scott did not meet Mr. James Davidson in Hindley, owner of all the mustards and peppers, till some years after the novel was written. Guy Mannering, when read to him, sent Mr. Davidson to sleep. The kind and manly character of Dandy, the gentle and delicious one of his wife, and the circumstances of their home were suggested, Lockhart thinks, by Scott's friend, steward, and amanuensis, Mr. William Laidlaw, by Mrs. Laidlaw, and by their farm among the braes of Yarrow. In truth, the border was peopled then by dandies and ailies, nor is the race even now extinct in Liddersdale and Teviotdale, in Etterick and Yarrow. As for mustard and pepper, their offspring too is powerful in the land, and is the deadly foe of vermin. The curious may consult Mr. Cook's work on the Dandy Dinmont Terrier. The Duke of Bluclue's breed still resembles the fine example painted by Gainsborough in his portrait of the Duke of Scott's time. Todd Gabby again, as Lockhart says, was studied from Todd Willie, the huntsman of the hills above Loch Skeen. As for the Galloway scenery, Scott did not know it well, having only visited the kingdom in 1793, when he was defending the too frolicsome Mr. McNaught, minister of Girthen. The beautiful and lonely wilds of the Glen Kens, in central Galloway, where traditions yet linger, were, unluckily, terra incognita to Scott. A Galloway story of a murder and its detection by the Prince of the Assassin's Boots inspired the scene where Dirk Catterake is traced by similar means. In Colonel Mannering, by the way, the Etterick Shepherd recognised Walter Scott, painted by himself. The reception of Guy Mannering was all that could be wished. William Erskine and Ballantyne were of the opinion that it is much more interesting than Waverley. Mr. Morritt, March 1815, pronounced himself to be quite charmed with Dandy, Meg Merrilies, and Dirk Hatterick, characters as original, as true to nature, and as forcibly conceived as, I had almost said, could have been drawn by Shakespeare himself. The public were not less appreciative. 2,000 copies at a guinea were sold the day after publication, and 3,000 more were disposed of in three months. The professional critics acted just as Scott, speaking in general terms, had prophesied that they would. Let us quote the British critic, 1815. There are few spectacles in the literary world more lamentable than to view a successful author, 
in his second appearance before the public, limping lamely after himself, and treading tediously and awkwardly in the very same round which, in his first effort, he had traced with vivacity and applause. We would not be harsh enough to say that the author of Waverley is in this predicament, but we are most unwillingly compelled to assert that the second effort falls far below the standard of the first. In Waverley there was a brilliancy of genius. In Guy Mannering there is little else beyond the wild sallies of an original genius, the bold and irregular efforts of a powerful but exhausted mind. Time enough has not been allowed him to recruit his resources, both of anecdote and wit. But, encouraged by the credit so justly bestowed upon one of the most finished portraits ever presented to the world, he has followed up the exhibition with a careless and hurried sketch, which portrays at once the weakness and the strength of its author. The character of Dirk Hatterake is a faithful copy from nature. It is one of those moral monsters which make us almost ashamed of our kind. Still, amidst the ruffian and murderous brutality of the smuggler, some few feelings of our common nature are thrown in with no less ingenuity than truth. The remainder of the personages are very little above the cast of a common lively novel. The Edinburgh lawyer is perhaps the most original portrait, nor are the Saturnalia of the Saturday evenings described without humour. The Domini is overdrawn and inconsistent, while the young ladies present nothing above par. There are parts of this novel which none but one endowed with the sublimity of genius could have dictated. There are others which any ordinary character cobbler might as easily have stitched together. There are sparks both of pathos and of humour, even in the dullest parts, which could be elicited from none but the author of Waverley. If indeed we have spoken in a manner derogatory to this, his later effort, our censure arises only from its comparison with the former. We cannot, however, conclude this article without remarking the absurd influence which our author unquestionably attributes to the calculations of judicial astrology. No power of chance alone could have fulfilled the joint predictions both of Guy Mannering and Meg Merrilies. We cannot suppose that the author can be endowed with sufficient folly to believe in the influence of planetary conjunctions himself, nor to have so miserable an idea of the understanding of his readers as to suppose them capable of a similar belief. We must also remember that the time of this novel is not in the Dark Ages, but scarcely forty years since. No aid, therefore, can be derived from the general tendency of popular superstition. What the clue may be to this apparent absurdity we cannot imagine. Whether the author be in jest or earnest we do not know, and we are willing to suppose in this dilemma that he does not know himself. The monthly review sorrowed, like the British, over the encouragement given to the follies of astrology. The critical review must lament that Guy Mannering is too often written in language unintelligible to all except the Scotch. The critical monthly also had scruples about morality. The novel advocates dueling, encourages a taste for peeping into the future, a taste by far too prevalent, and it is not over nice on religious subjects. The quarterly review distinguishes itself by stupidity, if not by spite. The language of Guy Mannering, though characteristic, is mean. The state of society, though peculiar, is vulgar. Meg Merrilies is swelled into a very unnatural importance. The speech of Meg Merrilies to Ellen Gowan is one of the few which affords an intelligible extract. The author does not even scruple to overturn the laws of nature, because Colonel Mannering resides in the neighbourhood of Ellen Gowan. 
the author either gravely believes what no other man alive believes, or he has, of malice prepense, committed so great an offence against good taste as to build his story on what we must know to be a contemptible absurdity. The greater part of the characters, their manners and dialect, are at once barbarous and vulgar, extravagant and mean. The work would be, on the whole, improved by being translated into English. Though we cannot, on the whole, speak of the novel with approbation, we will not affect to deny that we read it with interest and that it repaid us with amusement. It is in reviewing The Antiquary that the immortal idiot of the quarterly complains about the dark dialect of Anglified Erse. Published criticism never greatly affected Scott's spirits. Probably he very seldom read it. He knew that the public, like Constable's friend Mrs. Stewart, were reading Guy Mannering all day and dreaming of it all night. Indeed, it is much better to read Guy Mannering than to criticise it. A book written in six weeks, a book whose whole plot and conception was changed in the printing, must have its faults of construction. Thus we meet Mannering first as a youthful lover, a wanderer at adventure, an amateur astrologer, and suddenly we lose sight of him, and only recover him as a disappointed, disilluded, and weary, though still vigorous, veteran. This is the inevitable result of a novel based on a prediction. Either you have to leap some twenty years just when you're becoming familiar with the persons, or you have to begin in the midst of the events foreseen and then make a tedious return to explain the prophecy. Again, it was necessary for Scott to sacrifice Frank Kennedy, who is rather a taking adventurer, like Bothwell in Old Mortality. Readers regret the necessity which kills Kennedy. The whole fortunes of Van Beest Brown, his duel with the Colonel, and his fortunate appearance in the nick of time seem too rich in coincidences. Still, as the Dormont case and the Ormiston case have shown, coincidences, as unlooked for, do occur. A fastidious critic has found fault with Brown's flagellette. It is a modest instrument. But what was he to play upon? A lute? A concertina? A barrel organ? The characters of the young ladies have not always been applauded. Taste in the matter of heroines varies greatly. Sir Walter had no high opinion of his own skill in delineating them. But Julia Mannering is probably a masterly picture of a girl of that age. A girl with some silliness and more gaiety, with wit, love of banter, and in the last resort, sense and good feeling. She is particularly good when, in fear and trembling, she teases her imposing father. I expect, says Colonel Mannering, that you will pay to this young lady the attention which is due to misfortune and virtue. Certainly, sir. Is my future friend red-haired? Miss Mannering is very capable of listening to Brown's flageolette from the balcony, but not of accompanying Brown, should he desire it, in the boat. As for Brown himself, he is one of Sir Walter's usual young men, brave, handsome, not too clever. The despair of their humorous creator. Once you come to forty year, as Thackeray sings, then you'll know that a lad is an ass. And Scott had come to that age, and perhaps entertained that theory of a jeune premier when he wrote Guy Mannering. In that novel, as always, he was most himself when dealing either with homely Scottish characters of everyday life, with exaggerated types of humorous absurdity, and with wildly adventurous banditti, who appealed to the old strain of the border reaver in his blood. The wandering plot of Guy Mannering enabled him to introduce examples of all these sorts. The good-humoured, dull, dawdling Ellangowan, a laird half-dwindled to a yeoman, is a sketch absolutely accurate and wonderfully touched with pathos. The landladies, Mrs. McCandlish and Tib Mumps, are little masterpieces. 
So is Macmorlan, the foil to Glossin, and so is Playdell, allowing for the manner of the age. Glossin himself is best when least villainous. Sir Robert Hazelwood is hardly a success. But as to Jock Jabos, a southern Scot may say that he knows Jock Jabos in the flesh, so persistent is the type of that charioteer. It is partly Scott's good fortune, partly it is his evil luck, to be so inimitably and intimately true in his pictures of Scottish character. This wins the heart of his countrymen, indeed, but the stranger can never know how good Scott really is, any more than a Frenchman can appreciate Falstaff. Thus the alien may be vexed by what he thinks the mere clannish enthusiasm of praise in Scott's countrymen. Every little sketch of a passing face is exquisite in Scott's work, when he is at his best. For example, Dandy Dinmont's children are only indicated with a dusty roll of the brush, but we recognise at once the large, shy, kindly families of the border. Dandy himself, as the Edinburgh Review said, 1817, is beyond all question the best rustic portrait that has ever yet been exhibited to the public, the most honourable to rustics and the most creditable to the heart as well as to the genius of the author, the truest to nature, the most complete in all its lineaments. Dandy is always delightful, whether at Mumps Hall or on the Lonely Moor or at home in Charlie's Hope, or hunting, or leistering fish, or entering terriers at vermin, or fighting, or going to law, or listening to the reading of a disappointing will, or entertaining the orphan whom others neglect. Always delightful he is, always generous, always true, always the border farmer. There is no better stock of men, none less devastated by the modern spirit. His wife is worthy of him, and has that singular gentleness, kindliness, and dignity which prevail on the border, even in households far less prosperous than that of Dandy Dinmont. Dr. John Brown's Ailey in Rab and His Friends will naturally occur to the mind of every reader. Among Scott's character parts or types broadly humorous, few have been more popular than Dominie Sampson. His ungainly goodness, unwieldy strength and inaccessible learning have made great sport, especially when Guy Mannering was terrified for the stage. As Miss Bertram remarks in that singular piece, where even Jock Jabos wins till his English, like Elspeth in The Antiquary, the Domini rather forces a tear from the eye of sentiment than a laugh from the lungs of ribaldry. In the play, however, he sits down to read a folio on some bandboxes, which, very naturally, give way under him. As he had just asked Mrs. McCandlish, after the health of both her husbands, who are both dead, the lungs of ribaldry are more exercised than the fine eye of sentiment. We scarcely care to see our Domini treated thus. His creator had the very lowest opinion of the modern playwright's craft, and probably held that stage humour could not be too palpable and practical. Lockhart writes, verse 130, what share the novelist himself had in this first specimen of what he used to call the art of terrifying, I cannot exactly say, but his correspondence shows that the pretty song of the lullaby was not his only contribution to it, and I infer that he had taken the trouble to modify the plot and rearrange for stage purposes a considerable part of the original dialogue. Friends of the Dominie may be glad to know, perhaps on Scott's own testimony, that he was an alumnus of St Andrews. I was boarded for twenty pence a week at Lucky Sarah Cales in the high street of St Andrews. He was also unfortunate enough to hold a bursary in St Leonard's College, which, however, is a blunder. St. Leonard's and St. Salvatore's had already been merged in the United College, 1747. All this is in direct contradiction to the evidence in the novel, which makes the Dominie a Glasgow man. 
yet the change seems to be due to Scott rather than to Terry. It is certain that Colonel Mannering would not have approved of the treatment which the Dominie undergoes in a play whereof the plot and conduct fall little short of the unintelligible. Against the character of Playdell, a few murmurs of pedantic criticism, as Lockhart says, were uttered, and it was natural that Playdell should seem an incredible character to English readers, but there is plenty of evidence that his high jinks were not exaggerated. There remains the heroine of the novel, as Mr. Ruskin not incorrectly calls her, Meg Merrilies, the Sibyl who so captivated the imagination of Keats. Among Scott's many weird women, she is the most romantic, with her loyal heart and that fiery natural eloquence which, as Scott truly observed, does exist ready for moments of passion, even among the reticent lowlanders. The child of a mysterious wandering race, Meg has a double claim to utter such speeches as she addresses to Ellen Gowan, after the eviction of her tribe. Her death, as Mr. Ruskin says, is self-devoted, heroic in the highest, and happy. The devotion of Meg Merrilies, the grandeur of her figure, the music of her songs, more than redeem the character of Dirk Hatterake, even if we hold, with the Edinburgh reviewer, that he is a vulgar bandit of the German school, just as the insipidity and flagellate of the hero are redeemed by the ballads sung in the moment of recognition. Are these the links of forth, she said, or are they the crooks of Dee, or the bonny woods of Warachhead that I so fain would see? Guy Mannering, according to Lockhart, was pronounced by acclamation fully worthy to share the honours of Waverley. One star differeth from another in glory, and Guy Mannering has neither that vivid picture of clannish manners, nor that noble melancholy of a gallant and forlorn endeavour of the lost cause. When all was done that man may do, and all was done in vain. Which give dignity to Waverley. Yet, with Lockhart, we may admire in Guy Mannering the rapid, ever-heightening interest of the narrative, the unaffected kindliness of feeling, the manly purity of thought, everywhere mingled with a gentle humour and homely sagacity, but above all the rich variety and skilful contrast of character and manners, at once fresh in fiction and stamped with the unforgeable seal of truth and nature. Andrew Lang End of Volume 1 Editor's Introduction <laughs>